and welcome to the Own It podcast with Iona and Simon Bain. I'm Iona Bain and I'm the founder of Young Money Blog, as well as a broadcaster and author of two books, including my latest, Own It. Simon Bain is an award-winning business and finance journalist with 30 years of experience. He also happens to be my dad. And as we're living together under one roof during lockdown, we thought we would sit down and bring our different perspectives together to create, hopefully, funny, frank and fascinating conversations about the world of finance and ask some amazing guests to join us along the way. So that's what we're doing. We launched our first podcast recently and we got a fantastic response online. You guys seem to really love the idea of our double act, which is so nice to hear. And I got a particularly lovely piece of feedback from Shaheen, who said, Hey, Iona, just listened to the first episode and I love it. Been investing for the last two and a half years and I find most podcasts are pretty dry and tend to focus on just headlines and getting carried away with what makes the news. This was great and your dad had some really great insight. Look forward to the next one. Smiley face. Well, Shaheen, that made my week. I can't tell you how thrilled I was to receive your feedback and dad was incredibly chuffed too. So thank you. And if you have any thoughts or feedback on the podcast, then please do get in touch. You can tweet me at Iona Young Money or you can email me at readers at youngmoneyblog.co.uk. Now, just before we get into this week's episode, I want to flag up that you can now watch the first episode of Own It on YouTube. We filmed our chat in the Own It corner from different angles and the corner looks fantastic, in my opinion. You'll be the judge, of course, but we worked really hard to make it fun and attractive and me and Simon aren't that bad to look at either. I mean, you would not believe Dad's age. I will save that surprise for another podcast, but all I can say is I really hope I get his anti-aging genes. Anyway, do check out that first episode on YouTube if you'd prefer to watch our chat, as many people might. It's on the Young Money blog channel on YouTube. And make sure you subscribe so you can watch all future chats. But now, on with the podcast. Let's talk about GameStop. Or right. sh- should we say game stonks? Possibly. Mm. Um, for anyone who's been living under a rock, which let's face it is all of us at the moment, um, but if you've not been keeping up with the news, very quick summary, GameStop is a physical games retailer based in the US. Lots of people feel that it's having a rather hard time right now, what with restrictions and the death of the high street. And so hedge funds in America, as they are wont to do, um, decided to short GameStop, which basically means betting against it. And some young retail investors online cottoned onto this, most notably on a community called Wall Street Bets, which I've written about in my book, and um, its reputation uh, is rather notorious, shall we say. And uh, I got a message from Mike recently that said, Wall Street Bets has been wild lately, Iona. Check out how millennials are targeting short sellers and pumping up the price of certain shares by 400%. Thousands of us on a private group have been targeting BlackBerry for the past two weeks. You'll see loads of these stories coming. Young money is going after old money. Mm. So that was an interesting message from Mike. And I thought that now that the dust has settled, you could give us a quick update on where we're at with GameStop. Um, and whether the story has somewhat changed lately, whether the mood music has changed. Mm, it probably has. 
Um, I mean, January was an extraordinary month uh, for this particular share, having started the month at $17. At one point, two, two days from the end of the month, it was at $483, mm. which made it the biggest company in America, practically, um, purely because of this artificial pumping of the shares, uh, with so many um, young people coming in on, on these sites. Um, but actually, how does that happen? It, it seems that the uh, retail investor now has a lot more power and they actually control around about half of the money that is in the US mutual funds. And, and is that a new development? I think it is. It's been, I, think, I think they now control something like two and a half trillion out of five trillion, <laughs> having put on a trillion in the last year. Um, so they're now at sort of over 50%, whereas before it was more like sort of, you know, 30%. So there really has been this retail investing boom, particularly in the US, as a result of lockdown. I think that's right. I think potentially it's a power shift if you imagine all these people acting together in concert to do this, uh, try and make this strategy work. However, um, I mean, let's be sensible. Anybody who thought it was a great idea on the 28th of January, uh, when that stock was at two or three hundred dollars uh, and bought in, and were told by the people on these forums, don't sell. Mm. We are holding out against the hedge funds. It's the little guy against the big guy. Yes, you read that on one particular forum. Yeah, that's right. Um, he was a guy called Manchuda who is, uh, he, he was saying, this is about money and profit, but please remember, it's all about principles, really. <laughs> um, so anybody who's about to lose a large sum of money is not going to take kindly to being told it's all about principles, I'm sure. Yes. And people did lose. People people bought in and within a few days the stock was back down $100, $50. Yeah. It's now at $50. So when he talks about the hedge fund cheating bitches... Yeah, just blatantly break the law and squeeze those little guys out. Um, we are all one family, hold, and don't forget to take off the stop loss. The stop loss is something that prevents you from losing too much money. So go ahead, lose as much as you can. Mm. You see, that principle is not much consolation when you are nursing those big losses, albeit on yeah. paper. Yeah. And I mean, at this stage, it could be that these younger investors will decide, actually, let's just wait and see. Perhaps GameStop will turn things around, you know, and actually it may not have been the basket case that everybody made it out to be. It did have a strategy to try and revive the business. Yes. But at the same time, that's obviously not why people no. went into that stock. They were hoping that the price would just keep on rising. Yes, it's all about trading. And I think these people, um, I mean, I'm not saying they don't research these companies and decide which ones they're going to pick on next. But actually, it's all about being able to make this incredible profit, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. But it hasn't worked out that way for everyone. No. Let's talk about Max, Yes. who is from Bristol. He's 20 years yes, old. Yes. And he's been haunting my dreams and he's been haunting yours too, hasn't he? Well, no, it was just interesting that there was so much coverage about what was going on in the States. And eventually um, the, the media and the, and the press managed to sort of find one or two people in the UK who were on board. And Max was uh, cheerfully telling... Uh, whoever it was, that he was going to hold out for $1,000. You know, and the price was already falling at this stage. It already started to, on its downward plummet. And he was going to hold out for $1,000. Well, there you are. That's what I mean about the mindset. Um, Max, Max, what were you <laughs> thinking? <laughs> the influence. Uh, uh, you know, maybe he's made so much money he can afford to do that. But I, I suspect he probably hasn't. But at 20, you know, mm. actually, I don't blame Max. I don't blame a lot of these young people who have been sold alive with this yeah, and yeah. who do not have that experience in this education to be able to see through a lot of that online conversation. And I have yeah. to say, I do think the media has got a lot to answer for here because there was so much coverage mm -hmm. of the GameStop story and 
for a while there were reports of people making all this money, mm. a young person might look at that and think, well, how can I afford not to get in on this? Indeed. You know, I'm being irresponsible if I don't invest in this. Sure, sure. And then, of course, later on, we get all the horror stories. Yeah, but yeah. but that but but we don't get those until further down the line. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But even um, the sort of uh, consumer, you know, sites that people use, like Finder, uh, I, I went on there, and there was a little uh, story about the GameStop. The GME saga has captured the imagination of people around the world and so on and so on. And then after one paragraph, it goes, how to buy shares in GameStop. And here's your six-point plan. Choose a platform, open your account, confirm your payment details, and away you go. I mean, obviously, it was a formulaic thing. Mm. They've written GameStop into it, but it was very much a case of why not? Yes. And, I this, and this was on the Friday afternoon when the price was already at sort of 300 and something dollars. Yes, and unfortunately, <laughs> a lot of financial firms did see an opportunity to you know, get some more business off business, the back exactly. of this. Um, and one of the free trading apps, the best known in the UK, yes. in fact, uh, they perhaps, in my view, didn't handle it quite as well yeah, as free they could trade, have done. Um, all the users of free trade suddenly found on that Friday afternoon they couldn't buy US stocks anymore due mm. to a technical problem, um, which was, you know, probably a good thing for many of them if they were going to buy, buy that stock on that Friday. Yeah. But on the Monday, when it had halved in value, um, Free Trade opened up again to US stock buying. And at that moment, the, the founder of Free Trade tweeted that he was now buying GameStop again. Mm. So that was pretty extraordinary, really. Yeah, it's disappointing in a way, because yeah. I do think that Free Trade has done an awful lot to differentiate itself from Robin Hood sure. and to say that, look, we're cultivating more considered investors who take their time, who have mm. you know a lot of research under their belt and they don't just pile into stock market trends. Mm. So really, when it comes to their social media, they've they've really got to walk the walk in that respect because actually you can offer all these resources and academies through your app and through your website, but if lots of people are going to be engaging with you primarily through your social media accounts, and those are the messages that you're putting out, yes. then maybe the message they're getting is, "Come on, guys, the train's leaving the station. Yeah, for sure. You need to get on for it." Sure. Rather than take a step back and think about this. You're quite right, and. I mean, just, you mentioned that suddenly the, the story started to emerge of people who ha had actually got on the train at the wrong station. Mm. Um, a lady from Wales said she had used money from her savings to buy shares in GameStop and AMC, Cinema Group, um, and promptly lost about £2,500. She said, we haven't lost millions, but for us that is rent for the month, it is bills, I don't know how we'll recover, she said, from Wales. That's so, so that's so sad and sad. shocking. I know, it does rather bear out what you've said, probably. Yeah, I think it shows that for the first time, people have this option and this ability to buy these shares online so quickly and so cheaply. But it's a bit like in Jurassic Park, you know, <laughs> uh, when Ian Malcolm says, you know, we were too busy worrying about whether we could do it and not thinking enough about whether we should do it. That's really good. One more, uh, an accountant, he was only 27, but he suddenly moved his £69,000 Vanguard pension into GameStop shares. Oh, my goodness. When they were $230 per share on that Monday afternoon. And uh, he offloaded it the next day, having crystallised a loss of $42,000. That's around about two-thirds of his pension. That is really shocking. Wow. He described it as a moment of weakness amid a lot of hype. Mm. Well, I think that sums it up. Absolutely. <laughs> Now it's time for our first ever guest on the Own It podcast. Nathan Long is Senior Analyst at Hargreaves Lansdowne, which is the country's biggest investing and trading platform. 
Now, the reason I wanted to talk to Nathan today is that Hargreaves Lansdowne is launching a campaign to improve a product that could be a real game changer if you're saving for your first home or looking to invest extra money for your retirement. I'm talking about the Lifetime ISA. It's only available to the under 40s and it's a member of the much bigger family of ISAs. ISAs are tax-free wrappers for your money. Everybody gets an allowance every year that can be saved and invested into these wrappers without incurring any tax. But figuring out how to make the most of ISAs can be tricky. And until recently, the Lifetime ISA came with a major problem. And while the government got rid of that problem during the pandemic, it could come back. And Nathan has started a petition to make sure that doesn't happen. Well, Nathan, thank you so much for joining the Own It podcast. I really appreciate it. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Let's get started by exploring you know, who you are, where you work, what your job involves and what your areas of expertise are. Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm Nathan Long. Uh, I work for Hargreaves Lansdowne. I'm a senior analyst uh, for the company. So broadly, that means my job is to do loads of research around what uh, the best ways that we can help people to save and invest for the future. Um, as you can imagine, that covers a quite a broad range of, uh, of areas. But I guess if you pushed me on my specialist subject, I used to be a uh, an advisor to individuals and I used to be an advisor to companies who were putting in pensions for their staff. So I guess pensions and retirement planning is, is really my specialist subject, but kind of covering quite a wide range of areas these days. Indeed. And in recent years, another specialism that you have is the Lifetime ISA, which is a relatively new product. Um, but for anybody that doesn't really know what the Lifetime ISA is, can you explain how it works and why it should be considered by young savers and investors today. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, as you rightly say, it's, a, it's a, a fairly new product and it was set up and incentivised by the government to get people to save either for, for their first house or for retirement. So it's quite a weird product in some ways because those two, those two different objectives are quite different. But they're both things that people struggle and uh, need help to save towards. So um, the government's uh, idea was to basically incentivise people to, to save for the future. So it works by way of if I pay, for example, £4 into my lifetime ISA, the government tops that up by a pound. So I initially they're helping me to save for the future. And as long as I... As long as I either use that money to buy a house, uh, well, my first house, or I use it, I take it out after the age of 60, I get to keep that money that, go that the government's put in. Now, once the money's in the account, I can do with that really what I want to. So I can keep it in cash if I feel more secure that way, or I can be begin to invest it. So the choice is mine how I decide to invest it. The key thing is that the government's helping me to to save for the future. Um, and there's a couple of uh, additional things. There's the withdrawal penalty, which we'll, I'm sure, speak about in a, in a moment or two. Um, there's uh, limits on how much you can pay in. So a maximum of £4,000 a year. Uh, and you have to be under 40, for example, to set the, the, the account up. But once you've got it set up, you can pay until the age of 50. So a few quirks, but, but broadly quite a simple product. So you could be getting a bonus worth a thousand pounds a year from the government which is incredibly generous absolutely yeah i mean it's this is why from our point of view it's such a 
it's such an attractive product for people to save into because you're essentially getting free money, especially in the example of a house purchase. The government is literally helping you get on the housing ladder. So it's kind of a, a, a sort of first port of call, really, when you're thinking about, about saving for a house. But you mentioned before that it comes with a big problem. What is that problem and how could it be rectified? If you need to access it for reasons other than buying a home or after the age of 60, you face a penalty. So uh, imagine, for example, I'm, <clears throat> I'm working, I've been squirrelling money away from my first home, but I lose my job. Uh, if I have to get the money back out of that account, I can do, which is great. But actually, I give up the bonus, which is fair. But I also face an additional penalty of 6.25%. So in an example, the example you gave earlier, Iona, if I've, if I've put in 4,000, I get a bonus of 1,000 from the government. But actually, if I access it before I planned to, I have to pay back £1,250. So I'm giving back more than I've actually put in in the first place. So it's, it, it doesn't really seem sort of quite right that I'm, I'm having to sort of to be additionally penalised for inadvertently having to to access uh, to access my money. And that's kind of the problem that I think the account faces. And it makes it quite hard to plan because clearly you don't want to be putting money into that product unless you're really, really confident you're never going to have to, to draw on that. But that situation has been slightly different over the past year. Um, just explain the change that was introduced at the outset of the pandemic we were obviously looking at what the economic impact might be and we were thinking about how <clears throat> people might manage their personal finances through through that period. So our initial thought was to think, well, OK, people are going to have to access uh, money which they'd not perhaps planned to access. And we actually had quite a few contacts from our clients sort of saying, asking about how they could get money back out of their lifetime ISA. So we uh, contacted the government and said, look, we think probably people will have to access their lifetime ISA savings. We think that, you know, it's not really their fault they're having to. This is kind of a byproduct of the pandemic. Is there anything you can do to help? And what they what they agreed to was to reduce that penalty so that if you end up having to draw on that money when you for for not buying a house or for, for your retirement plans, actually they'd only claw back the bonus. They wouldn't hit you with the additional penalty. And that's that's great that they introduced that. They did that. They, they acted really quickly on that. But that's due to end uh, on the 5th of April this year. So at that point, we go back up to the full penalty being applied. And that was also introduced because um, people who have savings, including in their lifetime ISA, don't qualify for universal credit if those savings are above a certain level. It was good to bring the change in. But it hasn't really been necessary. So if we look at our own experience of this, um, we haven't really seen a big increase of people access, needing to access their lifetime ISA savings. We have seen an increase, but it's not anywhere near like what we feared it might be uh, when we sort of asked the government about this. But the reason for that, we think, is because of the furlough scheme and the help for the self-employed. So because of that additional support that's been been. Um, been brought in by the government actually whilst we've seen redundancies they're perhaps not to the level that many had feared when it, when the pandemic initially kicked off and we're just sort of slightly mindful about what happens when 
the furlough scheme begins to unravel and we start to sort of find our way in a way in perhaps what the new normal is for for work moving forward so i think there's still some concerns that people might have to access those savings in the future so that's why hargreaves lansdowne has launched this petition and this campaign to try to keep this penalty cut permanent but why are you embarking on this campaign i mean someone might say surely this penalty is a deterrent that people need and it's going to make them think twice before draining their savings and investments and and surely that's a good thing. The counter-argument is that the people who are making the choice to go into the lifetime ISA, they've made a decision to either want to buy a house and, and to build their deposit or to save money for the future. So it's not that they're inadvertently saving, they're deliberately wanting to do that. So to we don't, I almost don't think you need the friction for taking the money out because people have made that positive decision. That's slightly different if you were thinking of this whereby in um, the example of workplace pensions where you're automatically put into a pension plan, then probably there is the need for the friction because otherwise you might just take, the, take that money out because you've not made that decision. But here, people are deliberately saving in this, in this way. So actually, we see the penalty actually acting more as a barrier for people who want to save in the first place, because especially as we come into post-pandemic world and we think you're going to see economic uncertainty for many years ahead and people are going to be nervous about committing money to the future if they can't get that back without a penalty. So the reason we're so passionate about this change is because we think it can give people the confidence to get on with their lives, to get on with saving and investing, despite maybe a slightly uh, uncertain economic backdrop. In 2018, MPs who sit on the Treasury Select Committee urged the government to scrap the LISA and they said it was too complex, it conflicted with and detracted from pensions and it wasn't all that popular with the industry and with young people who it was targeted at. Is that something that you recognise and understand? So uh, I don't think the, co- the, the product itself is particularly complex. The idea and the simplicity of the bonuses actually, I think, is, is one of the benefits of the product. Probably the, the argument around complexity is, does it make the overall landscape for saving a bit more tricky to navigate? So in the past, if I had savings that were for the short term, I'd probably use an ISA. If they were for retirement, I'd use a pension. Now, all of a sudden, you have a, a new product to consider. So it probably makes the landscape a little bit more crowded and a bit more complex in terms of the decision making. But I think actually some of that issue comes down to the withdrawal penalty, which is what we're we're keen to abolish. Because if you think about currently, if I wanted to save for my first home, I would have to choose between probably an ISA account and a lifetime ISA account. And I would I would use a lifetime ISA if I was confident I didn't need to get that money back in a hurry. If I wasn't, I'd probably gravitate to the ISA. Now, if you got rid of the withdrawal penalty or removed it, I guess, to sort of 20% rather than 25%, what you're actually doing is making it a no-brainer that you would save into that product uh, straight away. So actually, some of the complexity goes away from this perspective. And the I guess the argument around the pension and that, that it detracts from pension, I'm not sure is really is really fair. What we see in terms of behaviour from people saving for the future is actually the workplace pension is kind of almost their default. 
And actually, I don't think the lysa really changes that that much. What the lifetime lysa really is valuable for is, is for people who don't have a workplace pension. So really the self-employed who at the moment are completely left on their own. I mean, only 30% of the self-employed are saving for retirement. And actually, if you look at the data around this, you can it's almost entirely people who are high rate taxpayers. So if you're self-employed and you're paying basic rate tax, you're, you're basically completely turned off pension. So if there's a product which can help people to save who are affected in that group, then to me, it seems sensible to keep it uh, and commit towards it. But is the LISA safe? Because we've had a changing of the guard at the Treasury since uh, 2016 when the LISA was launched. Is there a danger perhaps that the Treasury will decide that actually it's no longer a relevant product? Or do you think the Treasury will continue to back it and maybe make the necessary change that you've recommended to improve it? I mean, ultimately, I can't see them scrapping the product because... In the grand scheme of things, it's not a huge cost to, uh, to, to the Chancellor. So if you look at where, if they were going to make changes, where are they going to get the biggest bang for their, for their buck? It's not really in changing anything on the lifetime ISA. I don't think the twin reasons for setting it up have, have been solved. You know, it's still a big problem trying to get on the housing ladder in the first place. It's still... A big problem that people aren't saving enough for retirement so so that hasn't changed um and actually if you commit money so i don't think it's going to change but you can never say never i guess the key here is that if people put money into these products we're not expecting that the bonus to be taken away if they change it so if they if they were to withdraw the lifetime isa i would expect very very confidently that they would just stop future money is attracting a bonus rather than look at what you've already paid in. So as we hopefully start to see some light at the end of the COVID tunnel and we approach this new tax year, have you got maybe two or three things that you would recommend to anybody listening who wants to boost their financial position and just get their, their long-term finances in order? I'd say tip number one is to to get an emergency fund in place. So some rainy day money for for the unknown. So we, we'd typically steer uh, people to have three to six months worth of their extent, uh, essential expenditure. So enough to keep a roof over your head, food on the table, maybe maybe internet, these kind of things that are going to be, you, you really can't live without. So, so get that in place and just make sure you're covered. Um, and we've seen actually, you know, probably a, a, a greater realisation of this because of the pandemic. So I think it's it's a useful uh, a useful thing to do right now. Other than that, I guess the other two things would be to to look to build a savings habit. So uh, one of the things that we're really keen to always speak to our clients about is you don't need to have loads of money to start investing. You can do it with bite sized amounts. So, you know, you could put in £25 a month and just get yourself going with an investment account. And that might seem at the moment, you might think that's trivial. It's not enough to be an investor, but actually it all helps and it all adds up. And then you can start from much, much slower levels. So that, that building a savings habit, I think, is really important. I guess the third tip would be to, to try and boost your pension. And by that, I mean just to go back and speak to your employer, because I think one of the things that people miss so often is that if you're employed, you will be auto-enrolled and you'll get a certain level of contribution from your employer. But many employers actually are more generous if you pay in a little bit more. So just go and ask them, if I pay a bit more, will you match it? Because basically, if you don't ask them, you're missing out on free money. 
that is such a great tip and it's one that very few people know about but it could make such a huge difference to your overall pension pot in the long term because as you say it might not seem that much in the here and now but it really does add up over many many years so all great tips thank you so much Nathan and really appreciate you coming on the podcast and good luck with the campaign thank you very much my thinking on the lifetime ISA has evolved Mm. I do think it's still a no-brainer for anybody saving for their first home. It's so much better than the help to buy ISA. And in fact, I got contacted by Dom recently who wanted to know if the LISA would be a better shout than the help to buy ISA because he'd basically opened one the week before it was due to close because it's not open to new uh, savers anymore. And he did that because all the media said, Get helped by ISA, yes, it's closing. That's, that's, yes, absolutely. But you're able to transfer across, aren't you? You can transfer yes. across. And I have said to him that that probably is a good idea because you can save more into the lifetime mm. ISA. Your bonus is paid monthly, so you don't have that ridiculous situation that you had with the help to buy ISA mm. where the bonus was only play, paid after the exchange of contracts, yes. which left a lot of people in a very sticky situation. Yes. And I mean, what's the point of having that this bonus? That was weird, wasn't it? Yeah, what's the point of having the bonus if you can't uh, put it towards the deposit? Yes. Um, and you can also uh, buy higher value properties outside of London because the right. cap on the property value uh, that, that you're entitled to uh, outside of London for help to buy ISA is £250,000. Mm. And as Dom said to me, you know, you're not going to get very far anywhere in the country, really, with 250k for a first-time buyer. Well, home. I mean, you are in some places, but the point is, yeah. there's, there's no unif- uniformity. No uniformity, and you're limiting your options, and that's never a good idea. Sure. So I think it is a no-brainer for people like Dom who are saving for their first home. The question of whether it's a good alternative to a pension is more complicated. Mm. So you and I sat down one time, and we burst many blood vessels. Yes trying to figure out whether or not tax relief on pensions is better than the tax the advantages of the yes, ISA. Exactly. Yeah, there was some research came out, wasn't there, which suggested that the ISA was better always round, mm. you know, that uh, that it was better in, in tax terms than the pension. But I don't see that because the point about the ISA is that you are saving that money out of earnings that have already been taxed. Yes. When you eventually get your LISA, when you get to age 60, for heaven's sake, um, <laughs> then it comes out tax-free. Fantastic. But you've already paid that tax, mm. uh, as you do on any investments, uh, you know, um, funds that, that you create. You've already, yeah. you've already paid the tax on those earnings. So that is why uh, it is on a level playing field with a pension, where you get a bonus going in because you get that extra tax relief benefit. The government is effectively upping your contribution mm. by 25%. Mm. Um, but but you have to pay tax on your pension when it comes out. So mm. so it's it's fair always round. Mm. And so it probably is a good idea to stay in your workplace pension, not least because you yes. are getting free money from your employer. Absolutely. And therefore, the lifetime ISA is a good booster pot. Mm. Mm. But having said that, it is still a good option for the self-employed, particularly basic rate taxpayers. And those who can't put that much money into their pension, yes, uh, because the lifetime ISA has got that limit of four thousand pounds, which is not going to get you very far for your retirement. It's worth saying. And there is a slight anomaly now, isn't there? Because um, if the pension retirement age, you know, withdrawing a pension age goes up to fifty-seven, um, presumably it could well be at sixty. 
yes. by the time people come to take out their license, in which case the two ages would be together. Mm. Um, but in some ways, it's a long time to wait till 60, actually, it for is. the license. So maybe that is a little bit of an anomaly in itself. Well, this is why I do think that this penalty does need to be reassessed because this is the biggest flaw of the life so this is what's holding it sure. back and and in a way we're having the worst of both worlds sure. you haven't got this brutal lockup that the pension offers this tough love whereby you can only access it at mm. this age mm. so you can withdraw the cash but you're going to be really penalized for it <laughs> um so i really do think that if you were to cut the penalty then the lisa could be a really effective way of people building up that pot sure. that could be for their retirement but they can access it in emergencies and crises and right. let's face it we've seen over the past yeah, year well, exactly, that these things come along yeah it's proved the point hasn't it mm, absolutely. We've, we've had a crisis and nobody can deny it but it's also funny isn't it that it's called a lysa just because the isa was such a well-known brand mm. that people thought this is the only way you can save is an isa therefore a lysa is saving therefore everything is the same but it's not is it ISAs no. are, are, are all different and it's in a sense, been a bit of a marketing exercise. Mm. Um, and, and they've all got their pros and cons now, haven't they? The various mm. ISAs. What, don't you think there's been a, a change, really, in the way that things have developed? Yeah, I do think there has been a big change, although you're probably better placed to tell me why the ISA has become a lot less attractive over the years. Because it's been around for a while, hasn't it? Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, we started off back in the old days with the um, personal equity plan, the PEP, um, and then it sort of evolved into all these various forms, the ISA being the one that's managed to last the course. However, the point is that George Osborne, in his great revolution of 2015, when he allowed everybody to tap their pensions for cash, um, he also changed all the rules as, uh, as far as savings are concerned and as far as dividends are concerned. Right. And in the case of savings, all of a sudden, we had a personal savings allowance, mm -hmm. and it's £2,000, mm -hmm. which means that the ISA doesn't actually help you unless you have more than £2,000 in interest in any tax year. Mm. And in order to have £2,000 in interest on the current rate of typical rate of, I think it's 0.35%, you'd need to have some extraordinary sum, according to AJ Bell, £285,700 held in your savings account uh, in order to make it worth I mean, that would be lovely. Well, I mean, it's absurd, isn't it? I suppose if you're really clever, you might be getting a bit more than that 1%, being, mm -hmm. you know. That's the cash ISA. Um, yeah. The stocks and shares ISA is slightly similar because you now have a dividend allowance. Osborne set it at 5,000. Philip Hammond, when he became Chancellor um, and had his first budget only, what, two years later, a year after, in fact, the dividend allowance came in, slashed it from 5,000 to 2,000. Right. So uh, that was all about him targeting the self-employed, which he was very good at, as I remember, mm. uh, because of the number of self-employed people who were directors and paid themselves dividends, therefore they shouldn't have such a big allowance. Mm. But of course it affects everyone. Because let's um, face it, you know, they've, they've really benefited <laughs> from that yes. particular policy over the past year. Uh, but it does mean that, again, you've got to be earning a pretty good dividend, uh, you know, return in yeah. order to benefit from the, from the ISA. Also, there's a danger that if you buy into ISAs as being the be-all and end-all, and let's face it, we have this big ISA season here in the UK, mm. all the media have ISA supplements and lots of big features about how great ISAs are, and yet ISAs come with charges, and sometimes investing platforms can charge more for ISAs than general investment accounts. And that's not really a problem if you are investing these large sums and you do potentially have these large tax bills. But if you're a young investor that's starting out with relatively modest sums, 
then maybe you do need to watch out for the kind of ISA hype in a way yeah, because that yeah. could lead to you paying more than is necessary on your investments. Yeah, well, the typical, even the free platform is charging £3 a month, I think, isn't it? For, yes. For an ISA and nothing for not having an ISA. Mm. Um, and it will take people who are probably dabbling around with quite small sums a long time uh, for that to be worthwhile when they've got a £2,000 dividend allowance. That's assuming they're even thinking about dividends. Yeah. A lot of young investors aren't even thinking that way about income anyway. No, they're not. Absolutely. Um, Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks so much to Nathan Long, Senior Analyst at Hargreaves Lansdowne, for joining us on this episode. If you want to see the exit charge permanently reduced on the Lifetime ISA, then do sign the petition. I'll include the link in the show notes. Just to let you know, I've also been discussing this issue recently with Claire Barrett, Consumer Editor at the Financial Times on the FT Money Clinic podcast, where we helped a young chap called Ryan figure out the best strategy for his LISA. So search for the FT Money Clinic podcast and the episode is called How Can I Use ISAs to Invest or Buy a Property? Thanks to Matt Bain for helping with filming and sound design and Martin Stott for his advice and support. And of course, thanks to Simon, my very able co-pilot here on the Own It podcast. Make sure you subscribe and follow the podcast and where appropriate, it would be lovely if you could give us a nice review and five-star rating. Thank you for listening and I hope you'll join us for the next episode of the Own It podcast. Mm-hmm.